Well, good morning. Good morning to those of you online. It's good to have you with us this morning, whether you're here in the room or whether you're listening to this uh, somewhere else or at some point in the future. We are glad that you are here. And as we begin today, I want to encourage you to think about the most unbelievable thing you've ever heard somebody describe to you or have experienced yourself and tried to describe to somebody else. But it has to be something that actually happened, okay? If you have toddlers in your life, you know that sometimes you hear unbelievable things, and they are, in fact, unbelievable. But perhaps you've experienced something that was somewhat indescribable or unexplainable to you at the time, or maybe even supernatural. When I was thinking about this, my mind went to a time when I lived in Casper, Wyoming, about 15 years ago, maybe, and a friend of mine was telling me about a trip he had taken across the state on business, and he had seen something that to him was borderline supernatural. It was somewhat indescribable for him, and he was trying to explain it to us. He said, I was driving across southwest Wyoming, and I looked up at the sun in a clear blue sky, and I saw like a parentheses around the sun. And this was unbelievable to me. I'm thinking, what in the world are you talking about? See, Wyoming doesn't have much humidity. Here in Sioux Falls, we see things like this most winters, I would say. In fact, I took this picture that's on the screen now. My first winter here in February or January of 2019, I was driving home from work, and it was a bitterly, bitterly cold day, but there was enough humidity in the air that it creates what we call sundogs. Well, I had never seen a sundog before, and so it really captured my intention, and my mind immediately went to Hebrews 1.3 that says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his image. And so I, you know, put that together, and I share this every now and then for my friends back in Wyoming, and I even had to to text Brian and say, hey, you remember when you saw that thing and you were trying to describe it and we were all looking at you like you had a thumb on your forehead? Well, I finally saw one of those and it was amazing and I, I sent him the picture and he thought that was pretty cool too. And so something that was unbelievable has now become fairly commonplace. We see these most winters, if not every winter, and some other sort of strange phenomena that are becoming more uh, normal as we live in an area that has the combination of bitter cold and humidity. What a treat, right? But this is an important reminder for us as we continue our series titled, Do You See What I See? That at Christmas, some don't see what we see. As we've been talking in this series, they don't know what we know, so they can't see what we see, and they don't feel what we feel when we sing a song like we just sang. And so far in this series, we've been trying to take somewhat non-traditional perspectives of the Christmas story, and it was intentionally starting in concentric circles on the outside, those farthest from Christ, farthest from the Christmas story, and moving closer and closer. So we started with the partially informed public of Nazareth confronted with a virgin who was pledged to be married and now found with child. Pretty unbelievable explanation for that. And so we talked about what that was like for them. Then we moved last week to those who have no room. A little bit closer, actual contact with Mary and Joseph and the Christ child at the innkeeper in Bethlehem with no room for Jesus or with those bringing Jesus with them. And so the question has been, how can we help those who don't see what we see? How can we make it clear to them? How can we describe what we see? How can we love them and serve them and show them what we see and make it clear? And so this week we move a little bit closer 
And we talk about those who doubt, those who perhaps have legitimate questions. You see, our familiarity with the Christmas story, if you grew up hearing it or if you've accepted its truths for some time, our familiarity can cause us to forget how truly unbelievable it sounds to those who maybe didn't grow up in a Christian worldview, to those who didn't hear this, when their imaginations were young and pliable and they could accommodate something like the Christmas story. If you didn't grow up with that, if you grew up in a totally different culture, you'd grow up in some other part of the world where Christianity is not the dominant religion, where the majority of people don't accept what we accept, then to hear about a virgin birth or a divine rescue mission or a cosmic anomaly on par with those that are common in the Christmas story is somewhat unbelievable, just like the sun dogs that I had never seen before. And as they were trying to describe it, I just thought, you're crazy. That's, that's, what, the, that's what the bottom line is, and I'm not driving with you anywhere, okay? I'm going to be behind the wheel if what you see is true. But now, it's commonplace for me because I experienced it myself because I saw what he was trying to describe. And so we have to remember that just because we have believed doesn't mean others have. Just because we believe in the virgin birth doesn't mean other people can, can make the jump when we describe it to them. Just because we believe in a divine rescue mission, God with us, doesn't mean that others see what we see. And so, just like I mentioned last week, I, I mentioned last week's, I mentioned this week's passage in last week's message. You see, we're moving sort of backwards. Last week we were in Luke chapter 2. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at Zechariah because the nativity story in Luke's gospel begins with an introduction to a couple who was very faithful and who were confronted with some wild and wonderful and even unbelievable news. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 1, it's on page 1587 in the Bibles that are here in the sanctuary. Uh, if you're joining us online or you or you're just got your own Bible, I always encourage you to have that. You can make notes in the margins. That's okay. Um, and it's a good way to remember important points. This, we're going to read a longer chunk of Scripture, and it won't necessarily be on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible open in front of you, I'd encourage you to just listen along. But before we do that, there are a couple of things that are important about Luke's gospel and important about Luke's purpose in writing a gospel. Sometimes people ask me, Mark, why are there four different gospels? Isn't one enough? And when you study that, you find that, that the different gospels had different audiences, in mind that Mark was written predominantly to a Roman audience and was probably Peter's account of the gospel given to Mark while Peter was in prison, that Luke was hired by a guy named Theophilus, who we're going to hear about in just a moment, to, to create what Luke set out to create, which was an orderly account. We see that in verse 3, that it's addressed to Theophilus and that he says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. Now, we don't know who most excellent Theophilus is. We do know that in Greek that name Theophilus means God lover. And so we can kind of surmise that perhaps a wealthy patron hired Luke to create this orderly account. And Luke tells us why he did it. So that you, Theophilus, and you, God lovers may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That Luke set out to create an orderly account so that we could know the certainty of the things that we have been taught, even though they sound somewhat 
unbelievable. Now, Luke's gospel begins not with Jesus, but with John the Baptist. An orderly account, he starts at the very beginning, when the first revelation, the first vision was given. And so that's where we pick up the story, and it comes to us from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 20. I'll read through this pretty much in one chunk. I'll stop every now and then just to explain a few things in passing, and then we'll dig in deeper to a few verses as we go forward. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands. Commandments blamelessly and okay. Start over. Observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. So Luke's orderly account doesn't start with Joseph and Mary like Matthew's does. It starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So Zechariah is a priest, and there were 24 different orders. He's the priest in a specific order. And these 24 different orders cycled through their service in Jerusalem. So twice every year they would go and serve on normal weeks, and then all the priests would come to Jerusalem four times a year for the festivals. And so he's serving in this somewhat random or somewhat regular time of service, and then he's chosen by lot to go in. And that's when things change. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. What an announcement. What, what incredible news, right? Almost unbelievable news. You see, there aren't a lot of examples. You might be thinking of one or two in the Old Testament, maybe of Abraham and Sarah, that were well advanced in years and still were promised to have a child. But it gets better. The angel continues in verse 14. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow, what an incredible explanation of the life that this child will live. As if it wasn't enough, you're going to have a child in your old age. It's going to be a no ordinary child. This is going to be a child who's going to do all kinds of wonderful things in God's big story. And so we shouldn't be surprised with verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Stating the obvious, but it's a legitimate question I think we would say. And the response that he gets, though, is probably not what he was hoping for. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, 
The people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. For he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So that's a pretty fantastic story. Now, if you've heard it before, there's some familiarity to it. But if you're hearing this for the first time, you're like, wow, that's pretty sensational. There's a lot going on there. And so there's some things that we want to work back through that we're introduced in verse 6 to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're told that they're upright and they're blameless and they're following the commandments of Scripture. And Zechariah is serving faithfully in his role as a priest, as a descendant of Aaron. But they have no children. Now, we might be tempted today to sort of read over that. You see, today many people choose not to have children. And nobody thinks anything too significant of that decision. But at this time, nobody chose not to have children. Everybody wanted to have children. And if you didn't have children, it was even an object of disgrace. Elizabeth says in verse 25, that the Lord has taken away my disgrace among the people. You see, people would assume that if you didn't have children, there must be some sin in your life. Or maybe there was some generational sin in your family tree and that that's why you weren't able to have children. And so this was a really big deal. There were some practicalities of having children. In fact, children were most people's retirement plan. There were no IRAs. There were no 401ks. If you wanted to be able to stop working at some point, you better have children that could take over the family farm or the family business or support you in your old age. Children were very important to the family economic unit. And so they have no children. Despite a lifetime of faithful service, they'll have no legacy. Very similar to Abraham and Sarah. And so when the angel visits in verse 11 through 13, there's some significance there as well. Because we're told that an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Now, now when you read through your Bible, you read about one vision or one experience of God interrupting the, the world order after another. And it, it becomes easy to understand or easy to expect that to happen again. But when this happens to Zechariah, this happens at the end of what Scholars refer to as the 400 silent years from the end of the Old Testament, from the prophet Malachi. There were no prophets in Israel. There were no visions. There were no revelations until this one. Not just week after week, month after month, year after year, but generation after generation, century after century. And now there's a vision in the temple. And so he was afraid. And that's a reasonable response. After 400 years of silence, after no report of these visions, to be confronted with an angel. And so he's afraid. And of course, the angel tells us what angels almost always say. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Don't be afraid. It's a natural response, but it's not the appropriate response. I have something important to tell you. Your prayer has been answered. 
And I wonder, you know, what was the prayer? What was the specific prayer that he was praying? And I wonder if it shouldn't say your prayers have been answered because there's multiple things that come out of this. Not only is he going to have a son, but that son is going to be so significant in the big scheme of things. That son is going to point people to Jesus. That son is going to announce the Messiah. That son is going to call people to turn from their sin and to pursue God in new ways. And so perhaps it wasn't just the prayer for a son that no doubt he and Elizabeth had prayed over and over and over again. But perhaps it was also a prayer for a Messiah, a prayer for the coming king, a prayer for the long-awaited deliverer that would lead and usher in God's kingdom here on earth. Now verses 14 through 17 contain a pretty fantastic description of John, of his life, of the promises associated with his life. And so it is a reasonable question to ask in verse 18 when Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Do you remember Luke's purpose statement back in, chapter, in verse 4? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I wonder if he had Zechariah in mind when he penned those words. Because Zechariah asked, how can I know How can I be sure of this? He states the obvious. I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. Not only has there not been a vision for 400 years or a revelation for 400 years or a prophet for 400 years, but there hasn't been a story like this one for a lot longer than that. And so he asks this question, and it illustrates an important point that is our bottom line today, and we'll look at it from a number of different angles. But the bottom line today is that sometimes it takes some time to believe the unbelievable. Sometimes it takes us some time to believe the unbelievable. And sometimes when we're sharing our faith, when we're witnessing, when we're giving glory to God, when we're giving our testimony, when we're preaching the good news, sometimes it takes others some time to believe the unbelievable. And Zechariah is a good example of this. He has some doubts. He has some legitimate questions. He moves from fear to doubt. He moves from fear, do not be afraid. And then there's this fantastic description of what's going to take place, and he doubts. He has a legitimate question, given what we know, but I think the lesson, perhaps, is that he probably should have started with, thank you. (laughs) That's really good news. I'm so excited of what you're sharing. And then praise God for the good news that he had received. He should have started with, wow, not how. And maybe there's a lesson for us in that. I've heard a leadership talk on this topic before, that when somebody comes to you with a good idea, don't how it to death. Wow it into life. Say, wow. That's, tell me more about it. Tell me what you think this might result of that or how we could do that and, and get into your how with a wow. But unfortunately, Zechariah starts with a how. And he probably should have started with wow. He should have started with thank you. He should have praised God for the good news that had come to him. You see, he was a priest. He had been praying for years, for decades. And the first words out of, Zechari- or out of Gabriel's mouth are, your prayer has been heard and is about to be answered. And so perhaps we can read between the lines here and perhaps Zechariah stopped expecting an answer. Have you ever been there? Have you ever prayed for something for so long and been so sure that it was God's will and yet you don't see the answer you're looking for? That you start to wonder if you'll ever get the answer or maybe 
that God's even listening. And so I can draw a little bit of encouragement that, that even Zechariah, a faithful, blameless priest serving before God, might have gotten to a point where he was living a life of faithfulness but with little or no faith. And that might describe some of us, or that might describe somebody in your life, somebody that you will interact with. And it's hard to maintain faith in the midst of silence. It's hard to maintain faith in the midst of unanswered prayers. I think we can all agree that that's one of the hardest things that we do, is to maintain faith when the prayers don't seem to be answered at all or in the way that we would like. And it's in these moments that we must learn to rest in the sovereign will of God. And there's a powerful quote from Tim Keller that has really shifted the way I experience unanswered prayer. He says that if you cannot find rest in the sovereign will of your God, then your God is too small. And the God that I love, the God that I serve, is not too small. He's bigger than I can imagine. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is in all places at all times. He is absolutely sovereign over all the affairs of this world and absolutely good. And so Keller makes a really important point that, that if you can't find rest or you can't have rest and experience rest in the sovereign will of your God, then your God is too small. And the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the God of Zechariah, the God of Jesus is not too small. And so Jesus was able to have rest in the sovereign will of God. And the faithful saints throughout Scripture were able to have rest in the sovereign will of God because their God was not too small. And so I want to encourage you with that. Perhaps you can relate to it today. Perhaps someone you know can relate to that. And we need to expand our understanding of God, expand our view of God when His ways seem confusing. And remember, sometimes it takes some time to believe the unbelievable. Now, Gabriel's response probably moves Zechariah from doubt back to fear, right? I can imagine his voice booming as he says in verses 19 and 20, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, not to answer your questions about how it's going to happen, but to deliver good news to you. And so you want a sign? Here's your sign. Now you're going to be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time, Gabriel's basically saying, I came with good news and you didn't believe it. You asked me how. Instead of responding with gratitude and praise. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you've shared the good news. And been met with doubts. I was, well, what about this? And some little nitpicky question. And we've got to answer those questions. We've got to be patient with those questions. But maybe you can relate with Gabriel. I know I can as a pastor. Sometimes you, you, you feel like you're preaching the paint off the walls and you've got nothing but blank stares. Not today. You guys are doing good. I see attentive eyes. I'm not complaining. But I've been there, and maybe you've been there, or maybe you've shared your testimony with something, something deeply personal like your testimony, crossing over the line from, from being lost to being found, from being destined to separation from God for eternity to experiencing the salvation, and you're excited about it, and you're passionate about it, and you get this okay in response. That's basically, I think, how Gabriel feels here. 
Now, I don't necessarily recommend Gabriel's approach. I don't recommend raising your voice and and booming and striking people mute and deaf (laughs) the way that he does. I don't know that that's the best evangelism sign or best evangelism training. But he does give Zechariah a sign. It's probably not what Zechariah had in mind, but it is a sign. And it does serve as a miracle that provides proof. So Zechariah is struck silent and most likely deaf as well. You see, the word in the original language can mean mute and or deaf. In verse 62, uh, if you look down a little bit farther, verse 62, when the child is brought, when John is born and is brought to Zechariah and they're quibbling over his name, they made signs to his father, we're told, to find out what he would like to name the child. They wouldn't be making signs to him if he could hear. So it's likely that he was both deaf and mute, unable to speak. And so I think this is so ironic because he's just received the first vision in 400 years. And he's unable to tell people. And maybe they wouldn't believe him either if he could. And yeah, there's writing tablets and things like this, but, but I find that as an interesting, interesting outcome of his doubts. And so to make this a little bit more applicable, to bring this home so it's not just some out there thing, but what do we do with our doubts? What do we do with the doubts of others as we're sharing our faith, as we're explaining to people the good news as we have come to understand it? What do we do with their doubts? And what do we do with the doubts that we ourselves have? Well, first, let's start with our own doubts. The first thing that I would tell you to do with your doubts is to stay faithful. Stay faithful. I think Zechariah modeled this beautifully for us in his introduction. We're told that he was upright and blameless, that he and Elizabeth were observing the commandments. They were continuing to pursue holiness. They were staying faithful to God. And sometimes when we feel like there is only silence in response to our prayers, faithfulness can start to wane. And holiness just doesn't look quite as appealing to us. And we forget sometimes that the first blessing of obedience is obedience, that it's his own blessing, that God's word doesn't tell us to obey and then give us bad advice. It tells us to obey and then gives us very good advice. And our lives go better when we're not stealing and lying and cheating and killing each other. And so we're all better off when we obey. So stay faithful. Keep praying like Zechariah did. Keep seeking. Keep serving consistently. That's the first thing, stay faithful. The second thing, stay hopeful. This is where Zechariah may have dropped the ball just a little bit. There's evidence that he was not expecting an answer. There's evidence that he was continuing to pray and he was staying faithful and he was living a life of faithfulness but with very little faith. Stay hopeful. Stay hopeful. His first response was to doubt It was to ask questions. It was to ask for a sign. And hope, in its true biblical definition, is not wishful thinking. It's not stay wishful. Stay hopeful. Hope is a confident expectation of a future reality that has been promised. And there is a promise that each and every one of us have who are in Christ. Stay hopeful. Doubt your doubts and stay hopeful. Now, the third one is to be patient be patient. I wanted there to be a word patienceful. (laughs) 
so that we could say, stay patienceful. And one of my kids even told me, I think you should have gone with stay patient. I thought be patient was better than stay patient. And since patienceful isn't a word, we're going to go with be patient because that's what's on the slide. But learn to rest in God's sovereignty, as Tim Keller was talking about. Study and search out the scriptures to see just how big this God really is, just how powerful this God really is, how sovereign this God really is. See his hand moving throughout history. See his goodness and his grace and his love, all of which are beyond our ability to fully comprehend and rest in his sovereign will because he is big enough and good enough and strong enough to rest in his sovereignty. Trust his timing. Trust his goodness. Trust his character. And learn to seek his perspective, not your own. See, his perspective is so far above our own perspective. It's beyond our concept of time. And when we learn to to see things from God's perspective, things might start to make a little bit more sense. Or when we pay attention and circle back to the things that we were praying for and realize, well, I was praying for that. I didn't realize all this was going on. If I had realized that, I wouldn't have prayed for this. I would have prayed for that. And that's what actually came to happen. And God saw all that from the the whole time. And so I can trust in his goodness. I can trust in his timing. I can trust in his perspective. I can trust in his character and seek his wisdom, seek his will, seek to live his ways. Because, like we've been saying, sometimes it takes some time to believe the unbelievable. Sometimes the people we need to be patient with are ourselves, right? Now, if you need a handy Bible verse, there's one that you could probably memorize before the day is out. It's Romans 12, 12. It's a powerful verse. It came to mind as I was finishing up this message, and I thought, oh, I need to share that. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You do those three things, and you are way down the road in dealing with doubt. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. And so now you might say, okay, well, yeah, but Pastor Mark, you said you were going to talk about the doubts of others. What do we do with the doubts of others? Well, it's not that much different, but I would say start with the patience. Be patient. Don't get frustrated. When you start to feel somebody else's frustration, it's not a great motivator, is it? No. Stay patient. Don't get trusted. Don't get frustrated. Instead, trust God. Trust his timing. Be faithful to him. Trust his timing. Seek his perspective. Second would be stay hopeful. You might see where this is going now. Stay hopeful. Don't give up. Keep expecting a miracle. Keep sharing. Keep loving. Keep serving. Keep expecting a miracle. And that one little fact alone might do more to change somebody from doubt to faith, that you really expect that they will someday, that you really expect that things will change someday, that you really expect that they will see what you see someday. And you're content to be a link in the chain or you're content to be there when it happens. But either way, you stay hopeful. You don't give up. And lastly, stay faithful. Look to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Keep praying, keep serving, keep loving. Because sometimes it takes some time to believe the unbelievable. Now I want to finish with the the good news of this story. It has a happy ending. If you've read Luke 1 recently, you know. But John is in fact born. And he's brought to his father. And the first words, he gets to fix his mistake. 
His first words when his mouth is opened are praise. We read towards the end in verse 64 and following some selective scriptures that immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened when the child was brought to him and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. He spoke the words of God. He said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And later he looks at this child and he says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news of your great love of your sovereignty over the affairs of us feeble men and women. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for the word that tells us that you desire that none should perish, but that all would come to salvation. That you're patient even when we are impatient. And that you're faithful even when we are unfaithful. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts that long to follow after you and to believe in you and to trust you. For those who are listening, maybe something clicked today. Maybe it went from being completely unbelievable to could see how that could work. I, I'm starting to have eyes to see. I'm starting to have ears to hear myself. I'm starting to see what you see. Then I pray, Lord, that your spirit would help them take a step of faith. Help each of us to take a step of faith. But for those that, that don't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, for those who have been trying to do it their own way and realize that that, that doesn't work too well in this world and doesn't work at all in eternity, And for those that are willing to trust you, to confess their sins, to open their hearts to your love and your grace, to believe the unbelievable, I pray that your spirit would move them towards you. They would choose to follow you, to not only accept you as their Savior, but to make you their Lord and to learn what that means. Help us, Lord, each and every one to respond in faith to you today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.